Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast that you'll be listening to today is called Singles and Sexuality, Navigating with Clarity and Integrity, originally uploaded to SoundCloud by Mormon Singledom. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy this episode.
and American women 20.3. In 2010, the median age of marriage for American men and women is a full six years older, 28.7 for men and 26.5 for women. And additionally, a larger percentage of Americans are not getting married at all. Mormon scholars estimate that in the United States, up to a third of the adult membership in the church is single. Like other Americans, Mormons are marrying later or remaining single altogether, and the population of 30 to 40-year-old singles is on the rise. In a 2012 article on the increase in singles wards in the church, the Huffington Post called it a crisis of singles. Additionally, a couple of generations ago, the larger society valued marriage and sexual restraint resembling LDS values. This, of course, is no longer the case. And whether or not we like it, and for better or for worse, we are immersed in and shaped by a much more sexually focused society, which places high value on sexual fulfillment as a part of living life well. This creates an entirely different context in which to understand and address the experience of single LDS adults. The labeling of 30-plus singles in the 1970s as special interests would be even more offensive to our sensibilities now than it may have been then. It also makes it much more difficult for faithful individuals to sort out how to be whole and happy in a context of sexual chastity and singleness. It may also be difficult to tolerate that fellow churchgoers may not respect them as full adults in a way that the larger culture does. Single clients and friends have talked to me about at, three, at least three challenging realities. And I'll just say that I sent out to several friends who sent out to several friends of theirs to just collect from singles what their experiences were around this subject, what they found to be the challenges. And so I'll be quoting from a lot of uh, people about 20 different responses that I got. Um, so single clients and friends have talked to me about at least three challenging realities that they experience in the church. First, condescension and misunderstanding from church leaders and other married folks given their lower status unmarried state, meaning lower status in American faith. Second, the experience and reality of stunted adult development or social and sexual immaturity both within themselves and when interacting with other LDS singles. And third, the denial of and anxiety about single adult sexuality and by extension the lack of relevant guidance around the navigation of their sexual selves. Given these realities, it's perhaps not surprising that we are encountering difficulty in retaining our single adults in the church. Single adults that are needed and wanted, single adults that add to our strength as a collective. So let me say more about these three challenging realities that single adults experience. Um, the first challenging reality is the condescension or misunderstanding from leaders, parents, and other married adults towards singles. When marriage is an essential achievement of earth life, single adults represent an aberration from our theological ideal. If one doesn't get married, whether by choice or lack of opportunity, and marriage is the desired state, it is very easy to treat singles as though they are in a prolonged adolescence, a holding pattern, waiting patiently to arrive to true, at true adulthood for their lives to truly begin. As such, it's no surprise that spiritual guidance and instruction is primarily designed to reinforce the standard of marriage, rather than offering an alternative model of sainthood that is different from the married version, but valuable and purposeful in the church community nonetheless. As a marriage therapist, I very much believe and teach that marriage is a divine institution because coupling our lives with another pressures us and shapes us 
into more grounded and loving individuals if we will let it. Not everyone lets it. <laughs> that said, treating single adults as though they are not whole people, if not married, even if unwittingly, is a troubling conceptualization, not only for the inherent condescension in it, but also for how it creates a problematic frame for understanding personhood, sainthood, and even the essential ingredient of a happy marriage. Okay, I could, I'm not saying more there. I could say a lot more about that, but <laughs> check out my podcast. <laughs> okay. One of the byproducts of our default framing is that singles are often treated with pity, particularly the women, and suspicion, particularly the men, given the way that we gender sexuality, rather than regarding them as uh, regard, rather than regarding them as tremendous as a tremendous resource to the larger group. We unnecessarily diminish singles and underserve their needs. We also receive too few of their gifts and resources in ministering to the body of Christ. Singles need a purpose in our faith beyond enduring to the altar. Yeah. <laughs> Consistently, singles wrote to me about parents condescending to them or taking married simply. Sorry, who's that? Falling over my mouth. Okay. Consistently, singles wrote to me about parents condescending to them or taking married siblings more seriously. As a client said to me, when I go home for family reunions, I get the couch, while my married siblings, who are younger than me, get the private bedrooms with their spouses. Sometimes I even share bedrooms with my young nieces and nephews, and my parents don't understand why it upsets me. Singles also reported experiencing condescension, not just in the pitied nature of their lot, but also that married church leaders and members are often insensitive to or detached from the very real challenges associated with managing adult sexuality and sexual abstinence in adulthood. As a single adult male wrote to me, quote, bishops tend to marry young, and so they don't understand what it's like to be an older single. One of my prior bishops said, quote, it's just as hard for me to keep a law of chastity as it is for you, unquote except that my bishop gets to go home and sleep with his wife. <laughs> Another single adult wrote that her bishop counseled, well, just get married, as if it were simply a matter of laziness or lack of will that she was not. Second, singles talk about the experience of stunted development or social and sexual immaturity, both within themselves and in other LDS singles. Focus on marriage, coupled with the anxiety that sexuality will undermine one's basic goodness. Singles, single adults report feeling immature relative to their married or partnered friends. As one mid-single wrote, quote, under the justified guise of righteous desire, one can easily remain in an adolescent state. Since taking on adult responsibilities is hard, it's easier for many of us to write out our lives using the excuse of being single as a way to avoid the adult choices of career, education, social intimacy, financial responsibility, home ownership, etc. I can't tell you how many mid-single women I see who are still living with mom and dad, working an underemployed job, not taking care of themselves physically, and waiting for that day when Mr. Prince will come along to sweep them away and they can start their adult lives. As another single adult wrote, we still get together and play board games and eat ice cream for social activities. She's about uh, 37. It seems immature, like we're in a state of arrested development. She went on to say, maybe part of our immaturity is that we aren't having sex. 
A single adult male wrote, quote, we are sexually stunted due to the chastity rhetoric we hear growing up in the church. Chastity itself is not clearly defined, and the only guidance for us older singles on chastity is the strength of youth pamphlet. We are not youth. <laughs> and because we are sexually and socially stunted, it makes it even harder for us older singles to date and find mates. This is going to be depressing for a little while, and it's going to get better, I <laughs> Third, single adults, I'm sorry, third, singles talk about the collective denial or fear around single adult sexuality, and by extension, the lack of relevant guidance around the navigation of their sexual choices. Because the idea of unchanneled adult sexuality makes us nervous, we easily collude in the idea that sexual desires equivalent to a married adult are not really there, shouldn't be there, or don't need to be addressed in any meaningful way beyond don't. If we don't address the subject other than the importance of suppression, maybe it will go away. As one single LDS woman wrote, quote, the problem I see is that we as Mormons are unwilling to acknowledge that we singles are not only spiritual, but sexual as well. Another single explained, I personally don't believe that the human body is wired to continue into our 30s and 40s in a state of complete sexual repression. However, the active mid-single often believes, due to how the church teaches chastity, that we are supposed to be asexual until we marry. Of course, LDS singles are sexual beings, as we all are. Like our parents in heaven, we are embodied and sexual from birth. And, and you know, obviously that sexuality evolves as you move from childhood into adulthood. But single adults, of course, are no different. Singles are just attempting to forge adult developments inclusive of adult sexual desires and needs in a context of non-marriage and a belief in chastity. It's not easy, and single adults, at a bare minimum, deserve our acknowledgement and respect for their courageous choices. If we won't openly acknowledge ch singles' challenging choices in the sexual realm, we co-construct unnecessary shame and anxiety around the existence and experience of sexual desire. And shame and anxiety interfere with self-acceptance, spirituality by extension, and the integration of one's sexual being essential developmental tasks in becoming capable of relational and sexual intimacy. One doesn't have to act on his or her sexual desires non-maritally, but one must not shame the presence of them, nor see their presence as a function of sin. They are, after all, an expression of God-given longing in all of us that isn't made better by pretending it's not there. In fact, the lack of acknowledgement and integration of one's sexual desires can cause immature behavior expressed either as sexual compulsivity or total self-abnegation, either of which interferes with the ability to forge meaningful adult relationships. For example, a divorced friend of mine complained to me about the experience of dating obvious mid-single men and having to regularly fend off sexual voraciousness that was possessive and, ex possessive and exposing of sexual immaturity. Ironically, her experiences with non-LDS men are far more comfortable for her because her non-LDS dates are usually more at ease with sexuality and therefore wiser and less anxious in their decision-making. On the other extreme, I had a 30-year-old client who had obeyed the For the Strength of Youth pamphlet with 99.9% .9 perfection. He took to heart the passage that says, quote, do not do anything that arouses sexual feelings. For him, this meant not only refraining from masturbation, 
It meant not touching his genitals at all while cleaning or urinating. It also meant avoiding going to movies as well as interactions with the opposite sex because he recognized his inability to control the emergence of sexual feelings and arousal. He avoided grown-up behaviors and relationships at all costs, and in his case, the cost was his psychosocial maturation. While this client clearly had some OCD or anxiety-based decision-making patterns, he was in fact doing what the manual said with near perfection. The only problem was he was developmentally stunted, completely afraid of his own sexuality, afraid of women, afraid of intimacy, and unable to engage in any meaningful relationships with others. Is this what we're shooting for? Is this how we hope to relate to our God-given sexuality? I'm sure most of us would unequivocally say no, of course not. He has way over-interpreted, he has way over-interpreted this guideline. But when I suggested the same to him, that he allow a more nuanced interpretation, he rightly countered that the pamphlet does not say to manage sexual behaviors and feelings within reason and using your own best judgment. It says not to do anything that arouses sexual interest, period. He also pointed out to me that obedience is supposed to be a protection for us, but his obedience had not protected him, nor had it offered him maturity or even spirituality, in my opinion, only fear. Many LDS singles express that the, guideline given by church, that the guidelines given by church leaders are an extension of this cultural denial of adult sexuality and therefore are inadequate and misplaced. Treating single adults as an aberration to the Mary Early model, we unthinkingly apply standards written for adolescents to full adults, some even previously married, yet trying to work out a relationship with their sexual desires with an unforgiving expectation of sexual suppression as a function of goodness. Quoting from the For the Strength of Youth manual, a single adult writes, do not do anything that arouses sexual feelings. It happened to be that this person also brought this in. Hello, these words pretty much preclude dating entirely. <laughs> At least dating anyone I'm interested in. <laughs> I realize we aren't youth, but I often hear commentary in the church that indicates a general universality of the concepts contained in said pamphlet, especially in the singles community. So really, are you kidding me? Part of dating is exactly that, arousing and exploring sexual feelings within appropriate bounds. Another single adult writes, I feel like as a single person, I'm constantly working on squelching my desire and managing church expectations. It's exhausting. I feel I have no guidance on healthy ways to approach desire when you don't have legitimate avenues available for fulfillment. Another single adult says, we spend so much time focused on what we're trying to avoid and so little time focused on what we're trying to create. Essentially, sexuality is discussed among the single adult members in pretty much the same way it is discussed among the teenagers. In this area, our culture hasn't left adolescence. <laughs> One of the huge institutional vulnerabilities of giving inadequate acknowledgement of and guidance around sexuality to our single adults is that many begin to distrust their leadership and either leave the fold entirely or quietly break the rules and explore sexuality on their own terms, often never disclosing their choices to a church leader. Again, another single adult. Quote, I had a sexually assertive boyfriend in my late 30s. 
who helped me break open the door of my sexuality and desire. While I didn't end up having outright sex with him, the experience helped me start down a road of sexual awareness that has helped me come to a much better understanding and acceptance of my inherent sexuality. But the road was shadowed with lots of shame and confusion, which in retrospect was unnecessary. I chose not to speak to my church leadership about it, and I never will, which I also believe has helped me come to a more healthy place with all of this. So I think it's very interesting. She said, I chose not to speak to my church leadership about it, and I never will. She's fully active. Which I also believe has helped me to come to a more healthy place with all of this. Had I gone running to the bishop, I think the result would have been more layers of shame rather than actually helping me come to a place, to a healthy space of working out my sexual choices as a late 30s, early 40s single Mormon woman. One more quote from another single adult. One bishop I knew completely shamed my 40-year-old friend about her involvement with her fiancé, a guy she had dated for two years, when she went in for her temple marriage interview. He reduced her to tears. Fortunately, her fiancé stood up to him and put the bishop in his place when he tried to shame both of them. This happens way too often. The only way a mid-single population can change this culture and practice is to be bluntly honest and ask them to treat us with understanding about what it means to be celibate into your 30s and 40s. So I'd like to try and speak to two questions that we face. How can we as a faith community, you know, how do we as a faith community evolve in order to better serve our single members with respect to sexuality? And how might single members navigate these same questions and choices with integrity and clarity? To the first question, how do we as a faith community better serve our single members? First, I believe we need to more clearly articulate a vision of sexuality that is integrated with our highest ideals, that being a vision of sexuality that fosters our ability to love God, love and accept ourselves, and love and care for others. We need to go beyond the don'ts and the collusive avoidance of the topic and forge a framework for creating goodness through our sexual intentions and choices. We need this articulation for the church as a whole. As a marriage therapist who works primarily with LDS couples around sexual issues, I regularly, regularly see the fallout from our collective sexual anxiety. Anxiety about sensuality, about sexual thought and behavior, and the questions about whether or not sexuality and goodness can coexist within people. My dissertation research on LDS women's relationship to desire showed that most LDS women had internalized the notion that sexuality and goodness are incompatible, for women at least. Most, most had not integrated, most had not integrated any sense of sexual legitimacy prior to marriage and then had great difficulty engaging and enjoying sexuality within marriage. Simply removing the restrictions wasn't enough for most women to foster a sense of sexual selfhood, and as such, most struggled to create good sexual relationships. Now I understand why there is cultural anxiety. Sexuality is a tough subject, and it's a powerful way to be in connection with another human being, so being wary and wise in our relationship to sexuality is extremely important. But fearing it and or avoiding the subject altogether undermines all of us. Well-defined lines may be valuable when dealing with teenagers who often function best within a frame of do's and don'ts. Well, mostly don'ts. <laughs> but at a minimum, we need a framework for adults 
whether married or single, that helps us think about how to integrate our God-given sexuality with our desire to forge and offer goodness. For example, is passion and sensuality a problem? When is it too much? When is it not enough? Is passion and sensuality only okay when you're married? What's the problem with it when you're not? Is it a problem if it's with yourself? And if so, what is the problem? We need a better articulation of what makes sexuality good and what makes sexuality evil or harmful. And we need an articulation beyond marriage making sexuality good because it doesn't. It's not a sufficient condition. In my opinion, the intention and context of sexual behavior is very important in defining it. Natural man is not in reference to our sexuality or sensuality as we often infer. I believe natural man is in reference to our selfishness, our immaturity, our impulse to serve our immediate interests at others or our own expense. This is what comes to us most naturally. And spiritual development comes through overcoming our self-serving impulses and reaching for higher desires and objectives that serve the collective, including ourselves. In my perspective, sexuality is neither inherently good or inherently bad. Instead, sexuality is a powerful form of engagement with others because it taps into the most vulnerable part of human beings. What makes it good or bad is the context and our intentions. For example, there is no greater way to damage the soul and psyche of another person than through sexual exploitation or assault. I also believe sexuality between committed loving partners has the ability to be a sacrament, a highly sacred, transcendent form of communion with another. We can use our sexuality for either, depending on the intention of our hearts and the context of our choice of our choosing. Are we engaged in what the theologian Martin Buber referred to as an I-it relationship, seeing the world as self-object, that people are there to validate and serve our desires, or as an I-thou relationship, a relationship of profound respect for another human being, a person fully separate from you and fully equal to you? This is one of the reasons I believe we're commanded to engage the deepest forms of sexual expression in a context of commitment because in so doing, we lower the psychological and biological risks to a spouse and to ourselves, as well as any child that might be a product of that union. Consistently, our teaching of sexual conservatism communicated through the law of chastity is wise. A study, um, not a non-Mormon study, but a study surveying 2,000 people polling across religions and socioeconomic levels found that those who delayed sexual activity reported greater relationship stability and satisfaction, including greater sexual satisfaction. Further, a society that divorces sex from commitment, as our post-sexual revolution society does, can be problematic, especially for women, because women bear the greater risks biologically for pregnancy and disease. A communal expectation of sexuality with commitment works in women's favor. Women consistently choose fewer sexual partners in the larger society than men do, and to have sex later than men do. Um, more sexually conservative choices. The law of chastity, as my dissertation argues, communicates a communal expectation of committed sexuality to men that works in women's favor because it supports the, con the context that many women desire sexually. But legal commitment isn't enough to make sexuality good. Um, Otherwise, I wouldn't be in practice. <laughs> lots, lots of unloving engagement happens in marriage. 
One can take the entitled position that you owe me sex because you're my spouse, you now belong to me. Or the entitled position that I don't have to have sex because sex makes me uncomfortable. And so even though my marriage commitment to you includes a sexual relationship, that is not as important as my comfort. Both are very common positions in marriage, and both are ways of taking advantage of one another in the sexual realm. So in helping to foster adults capable of loving, committed sexuality, I think the goals of our sexual guidelines should center around fostering one's ability to be in meaningful relationships, in the, including the relationship to oneself, one's sexuality and desires, and the ability to be in relationship with others, including relationships that are, that are inherently sexual, meaning dating relationships, even if in a matter of degree. For example, attraction and desire are elements of our sexuality that need space to be experienced and integrated. This includes the space to develop and understand sexual desire within oneself, as well as in relationship to a desired other. It does not have to include full sexual expression and may not include any sexual expression, but there needs to be room to grapple with desire and engagement with others in line with the degree of love and the degree of commitment in that relationship. I believe Adam Miller, the author of Letters to a Young Mormon, captures the essence of healthy relationships of a healthy relationship to sexual desire. The following is excerpted from his book. Remember that your hunger for intimacy, like all hungers, is a grace, not a punishment. This hunger is different because it is not just a hunger for food or air, but for another person. The hunger for intimacy is like an ocean. It will come like a flood, and you will feel lost at sea. When you were a child, you walked on dry ground. In order to become an adult, you'll have to learn how to swim. You are no more responsible for being at sea than you are for needing to breathe. And though some may say different, you are not guilty because the ocean is wet. You did not choose this hunger. However, the particulars may vary. The task remains basically the same. Learn how to care for this hunger. Caring for this hunger will take patience and practice. Be kind to yourself as you stumble through. In church, we say, learn to be chaste. That is right, but we have to be clear. Chastity as a way of practicing care doesn't purge or deny this hunger. You are chaste when you are full of life, and you are full of life when you are true to the hungers that root it. To care for this hunger, you must do just as you did with the others. You cannot get rid of your hunger, either by pandering to it or by purging it. Both strategies deny hunger. Church talk about sexual purity is meant to keep you close to life and warn you against trying to end your hunger by carelessly indulging it. But while talk of purity may help constrain your hunger, it can, it can also conspire with the impulse to purge it. And trying to get rid of your hunger by purging it, even for the sake of purity, will just as surely leave you spiritually dead as indulging it. The measure of chastity is life, and life by design is messy. If used without care, aiming for purity is as likely to maim you as save you. Don't become a slave to your hunger, and don't try to make a slave of your hunger. Slavery is sin, and sin is death. In line with Adam Miller's notion of learning to care for this hunger, the hunger for sexual connection, I believe our instruction and guidelines for single adults and all adults ought to, 
ought to facilitate the goals of self-acceptance and self-knowledge around sexuality and desire, and facilitate the capacity to, be, to commit to and care for another human being, in part by being able to share one's sexuality. As one learns how to swim, in Adam Miller's language, in the ocean of desire, questions that might guide our judgment include, does the way I relate to my sexuality bring me into deeper connection with myself and others, or does it disconnect me? Does the way I relate to my sexual desire bring me into deeper connection with God and with my integrity? Does my sexuality bless my life and the life of my beloved, even if that blessing is through restraint? In neither example above, the earlier, the examples of sexual excessiveness or self-abnegation, both choices fostered relational and spiritual alienation. <clears throat> Similar to our relationship with food or any passion is the question of whether or not the passion blesses our life or takes it over. Does your relationship to your sexuality or food or money or any passion bring you pleasure in ways that deepen connection with yourself and others, or does it alienate you from both? Does it make you stronger and more grounded or fractured and more vulnerable? A single adult writes, quote, I believe that sexuality is really important to human development, and I believe and I feel somewhat stunted and juvenile as a 31-year-old virgin. I also believe strongly in the benefits and virtues of the law of chastity in the spiritual sense and in the emotional relational sense, I feel stuck. So how do we think about what is right for our specific situation, whether in a relationship or single? I believe that obedience to true principles matters, and so does following the spirit in applying true principles to your specific situations. I believe wholeheartedly that the capacity to make choices in line with our integrity, in line with our truest beliefs, in line with the spirit, is essential in achieving spiritual adulthood. Part of achieving Godhood theologically must come from our own, from our individual achievement of wisdom, our development of greater discernment and increased ability to choose according to our conscience. As Joseph Smith taught, we should teach correct principles and let saints self-govern. What it means to apply the spirit in your situation in navigating these choices will look different from others, depending on who you are and the context of your choices. A single adult writes, quote, I remember when I got a little older and realized that dating was different than it had been in my early 20s at BYU. I found that my clear-cut equations that had helped me when I was younger didn't always work as well in my relationships. Sometimes they held my relationship back. I had to get better at asking myself, can the spirit be with me in my relationship when we do X? That required more flexibility and also more vigilance on my part. It also felt more like an adult relationship. Another single writes, in terms of my own decisions about sexuality, I pay a lot of attention now to how I actually feel in any given interaction or relationship rather than how I'm told I'm supposed to feel. And what I've learned is that I don't feel much of any guilt for expressing my sexuality in various ways in the context of a loving relationship. I figure if God thinks I'm doing something wrong, he is capable of letting me know. Like when I mean to people or when I litter. Instead of asking myself, 
Did I cross the line and break the law of chastity? I asked myself, did this interaction increase or decrease the level of intimacy in our relationship? Was the interaction born of mutual respect and love or of something else? Do I feel like my agency is honored and respected with this person or do I honor his? When I'm feeling vulnerable, is this a safe person to be with? Does the level of our physical intimacy match our emotional intimacy? That kind of thing. In many ways, this kind of approach demands a lot more from me in terms of integrity, courage, and compassion than simply worrying about whether or not I've crossed the, for the strength of youth line. Another person writes, bishops are many things, but they are not experts on sex and sexuality, though we treat them as though they are. Because of the cultural taboos around sexuality, they may be the only person that individuals ever really talk to about their sex lives or sexual issues outside of a spouse or lover. What should leadership do to get a better handle on this, and how can adults cultivate their own autonomy about these issues? Part of being wise in our decision-making is to let go of sexual shame and self-rejection, and instead to embrace our God-given sexuality as a gift, as a part of us, as a desire that we are stewards over, even if the unmet longing is at times painful. Self-acceptance means being honest with yourself and God about who you are. It means honoring and serving God and others through your sexuality in whatever context you exist, rather than trying to repress it or deny it. For some singles, this may mean sacrificing the potential sacrament of sexual union. Many people have found ways to sublimate and translate their sexuality into other forms of service and, devo uh, and devotion to goodness in the world. Sexual restraint, the channeling of desire, can foster creativity and determination. And wasn't it Bishop Nelson that said once he got married, he got much less creative? <laughs> so when every urge is satisfied, we don't have as much space to work and struggle for what we desire. This is one of the challenges of modern society. Recent research demonstrated when subjects were exposed to unacceptable sexual thoughts or unacceptable anger, participants became more creative shortly following the exposure than those not exposed to the forbidden content. This, this was more punctuated, there was a more punctuated effect with Protestants as compared to Catholic or Jews, because researchers theorized that both Catholics and Jews lost creativity through excessive guilt. Protestants felt that they should not indulge the feelings, but they did not lose energy to the same degree in dispelling psychic energy through guilt and anxiety. So did you follow that? So the, the, they did, they, I'll just say it quickly. So they basically um, had Protestants, Jews, and Catholics, and they, they subjected them to sexual content or to angry memories of their own. And then, uh, but they're in a social situation where they can't, they have to sort of sublimate and manage it. And then they gave them a creative task. And the people that had been given the more psychically uncomfortable images were, would channel that energy and would become more creative, right? But if it got diffused through guilt, meaning they theorized that the reason why this was more true for Protestants is Protestants didn't talk about as much guilt for having the feelings. They sort of acknowledged them as human, but still they weren't going to act on them. And when people would feel guilty for having the feelings at all, then it would be diffused through a kind of anxiety but didn't get channeled into creative or pro-social uh, means. Uh, I would like to think that we Mormons are more like the Protestants, but we also get caught in unproductive guilt and shame for our sexuality, rather than thoughtfully channeling our God-given passions in productive and pro-social ways. 
Again, there is power in self-acceptance around sexual thoughts and desires, whether facilitating our capacity for intimacy with another or channeling those passions into other forms of self-expression and service to, to the children of God. In order to be at peace, though, we must take responsibility for our choices, even if, even if they are hard. We cannot depend on simply following what others tell us, taking refuge in a martyr-like obedience, if we are to live our lives well. We must lay claim to our beliefs and have the courage to stand by them, even in the face of invalidation from others. The following is an example of a single adult's acceptance of herself and asserting challenging choices. Quote, it was a powerful moment for me when I felt I could own my own sexuality. I can still remember at about age 35 when I realized I was a sexual being whether I was having sex or not. For a long time, I saw sexuality as actions, and that was different from my life, from the life I was living, meaning I was a non-sexual person and married people were sexual people. She goes on to say, Quote, I have embraced my choices and I've grown. I've taken on this attitude. It's my body, so I say with whom and when I engage physically. And even when that choice is never, while single, that is still a choice I am making for myself. My choice has been abstinence. This felt like a burden for a long time, but since I've embraced it as a choice, it's given me a lot of power and I proclaim it more boldly now. I no longer shrink from the word virgin but stated as a grown adult with a chosen path. This took a long time, and I'm still not fully there, because our society makes you feel stupid and childish if you are a virgin. The reality is there are lots of stupid and childish people who are having sex. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my choice, of course, comes with a major downside. It's hard to embrace and own sexuality when sex is not a normal part of life. Sharing a bed is not normal for me. Sharing a life is not normal for me. It sort of sucks, and there is a terrible dark spot on the soul and a yearning that is never satisfied. I realize that some married people have this same lonely feeling. But I'm forcing my body into a non-normal state, and it takes a toll. But because I choose this, I also appreciate the reasons why I do. I have a community of Mormon saints who love and embrace me, a strong conscience that I'm living my own way, and a feeling of safety because I'm not manipulated or abused. Being single has many advantages, obviously, so I embrace those, and I do other things for sexuality, like explore my body, develop close emotional relationships, love children, and make out with men when I get the chance. <laughs> it's not the same, but it's what I've pieced together, and it works. I think people should be aware of what it takes to be healthy and abstinent and you single members with respect. Purposeful pain makes all the difference. When you believe in what you're choosing, you can endure much more because you believe in the higher good that the choice is creating. Author Clive Barker writes, quote, any fool can be happy. It takes a man or a woman with real heart to make beauty out of the stuff that makes us weep. In my opinion, this is the essence of the gospel to be grounded in our integrity. This is where we create literal strength within ourselves, to align our behavior with our truest beliefs, not others' beliefs, not what others tell us we should want, do, or think, but to live according to one's highest conscience and to live according to the Spirit. This will vary among us, I'm certain, but this is the work of adulthood, and in many respects, single adults are pressured up against this reality in a way that marrieds may not experience. 
Because married folks' lives better fit LDS cultural ideals, it is easier to fall into a complacent compliance model of living without challenging their own culturally validated choices against their integrity. As I talk about a lot, spiritual and relational development is to lessen our dependency on validation or agreement from others and to increase our dependency on validation from God, meaning God who stands for the best in ourselves, God who represents the ideals that will bring us into deepest connection with ourselves, with others, and with divinity. I pray for you and for all of us that we will find the strength, find this strength, and in a maturity and the capacity for intimacy in whatever context our life offers. And thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's online courses, you can do so at her website at www.finlayson-fife.com. Thanks for being here and thank you for listening.